Our scripture reading today. Our scripture reading today comes from Matthew eleven, sixteen through twenty-four, where the Holy Scriptures read. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like a child sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, but you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. But the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, then they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me and for me as we begin today? Father, we just ask again that your spirit would be our teacher today. I ask that you would work through the foolishness of preaching. The words that I speak today would only be your words as revealed in your written word. That I wouldn't go beyond scripture. That I wouldn't infuse my own thoughts, my own biases and presuppositions upon your holy word. But that we would all together look at your word in such a way where we root out our biases and presuppositions. Where we go to you with our hearts open asking you to show us the ways that we are not thinking rightly about you. And we ask that in that process, Father, that you would help us to become better image bearers of Christ. Help us to walk in Christ-likeness. We ask for clarity and understanding on a difficult text, Lord. Help me to communicate this for your glory and your people's good. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You may be seated. What would you think if your bestest of friends, who you texted daily, who you were in constant contact with, maybe it's a parent, a mother, a father, or it's just a non-relative, but what would you think if this person that you kept regular contact with suddenly dropped cold off the face of the earth, stopped calling you? Stop texting you. When you called, it went to voicemail every time. Seemed like they maybe were silencing you. You texted, you emailed, but none of it got a response. What would you think? How would you process that? Would you think that, oh man, they must be upset with me? And would you start re-examining all the things that you've said in the last couple of weeks to them that might have upset them? Or... Would you go to a darker place and assume something terrible maybe happened to them? Maybe they were in a horrible accident. 
Maybe they were in the hospital, unconscious, on life support, or maybe they were dead. What would you think? Would you think that maybe their phone had just broken and they weren't able to answer and that's why it went to voicemail? Or would you think maybe, you know what, they've just had a really busy week, this isn't, this isn't, this isn't usual for them, and so maybe they're just super caught up with work or whatever. Now here's the thing though, whichever one that you would assume, whichever one you would go with and naturally think is to be the case, I think it's fair to say that you would, in that moment, will probably think that it's a perfectly reasonable response to have, even if everybody else knew that it was as crazy as a fox. Anybody ever done that before? You jump to conclusions, you assume the worst, but even in those moments when you find out what the truth is, you look back and you're like, oh, it makes sense why I thought that. You're not like, oh my goodness, I'm crazy. We don't do that, do we? We all naturally jump to conclusions. We all have assumptions. And we all, in those assumptions, lean to different extremes on those assumptions. And here is the thing about that. What that is, what you determine, whether it's an extreme hospital situation or their phone broke, it's all related to something called confirmation bias. You ever heard that term before? Three of us. Awesome. Confirmation bias. Confirmation bias is the human tendency where we draw conclusions based upon pre-existing conditions. This is something that is called the my side bias. And what the my side bias is, is it basically functions like a magnet that draws us towards conclusions that fit with our side of the story. We naturally gravitate towards facts that fit what we want to be true. That's what confirmation bias is. Make sense? Now, I tried to come up with a few more examples of this just in case it doesn't make sense, but I looked and looked, and I couldn't find anything going on in our society of confirmation bias, especially over these past two years. It's, there's just none of it. Now, in case you didn't pick up on my spiritual gift of sarcasm, the point is there is much confirmation bias around us. In fact, we are almost overloaded with it in this day and age. But here's the thing about confirmation bias. Studies have shown that confirmation bias is so powerful that even when a person who has a specific confirmation bias is shown concrete, objective, undeniable evidence and proof that what they are believing is wrong, people will still cling on to that truth even if it's hurting them, even if it leads to financial loss, relational suffering. They'll do this. It's a really weird thing that all of you humans do. I never do it, but I guess everyone does it. Warren Buffett famously once put it this way when he said, what human beings do best is in interpreting new information so that their prior conclusions remain intact. I think he's right. And so here's the thing. If we have confirmation bias when it comes to the news and we do, and if we have confirmation bias when it comes to politics, I think we do on that one, 
And if we have confirmation bias, when it even comes to you know, science, like health and nutrition, those sort of things, and we do, then should it really come to a surprise when we find out that we have confirmation bias when it comes to our religious beliefs? Because we absolutely do. Even for those of us who are Christians, we approach God's word with a confirmation bias. And that's one of the challenges of opening the Word of God and reading it and unpacking it and understanding it as we ought. It's because we all have confirmation bias. Have you ever wondered why some people believe that Jesus is their Lord and Savior and other people don't? Not everybody does. Why is that? What is the difference between someone who does and doesn't? Well, as our passage this morning shows us, it's a special kind of confirmation bias, which actually the Bible calls unbelief. Unbelief is confirmation bias. It's not a neutral thing where you're just like, well, until I see the evidences fully, until my expectations for evidences are met, then I'll believe. No, 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 no. We are disregarding a certain belief because we are valuing other beliefs. That's what spiritual confirmation bias is. And in the Bible, that is called unbelief. And as we'll see this morning from Matthew chapter 11, unbelief isn't simply a lack of belief. It's not a neutral position. Unbelief is actually a special kind of belief that, like confirmation bias, confirms what it wants to be true. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 15 through 24, we find Jesus' words on unbelief. And he's going to tell us three things in this text about unbelief that we're going to look at this morning. First off, unbelief is a confirmation bias that is unappeasable, unmovable, and third, unacceptable. So if you have your Bibles, I'll give you a second. Open to Matthew chapter 11. I will put all of the scripture on the screen that is not in Matthew chapter 11, but all the scripture that is in Matthew chapter 11, you're going to have to use your Bible for that. So I'll give you a second. Turn, if you would, with me to Matthew chapter 11. Now, while you turn there, let's remind us that the last couple of weeks we've been looking at John the Baptist's doubt. Doubting John, not doubting Thomas, doubting John the Baptist. And we've looked at how Jesus has responded to John's doubt. And as we'll see from this, well, let me say this. I think the entire chapter actually can be rightly understood as Jesus' response to John's doubt. Even when he addresses Israel's form of their doubt, which is actually an extreme form, which becomes unbelief, he's really still dealing with John's original doubt. See, first we saw a couple weeks ago that doubt comes from wrong expectations, which John certainly at least had, at least in part. He had some wrong expectations. He believed that Messiah was going to come as a conquering king, and yet here was John in prison on his way to his own execution. Then we saw how Jesus not only comforted John, but he confirmed John in the midst of his doubt. He didn't come to John and say, how dare you question me, you worthless sinner? What kind of forerunner are you? No, he didn't do that, did he? He confirmed John in his doubt by letting the crowd know that John was so great that he was the greatest born among women. He was the greatest person ever born. That's the kind of response John gets with his doubt from Jesus. 
And this tells us something very important when we look at Matthew chapter 11, and it's this. Doubt isn't the same thing as unbelief. They're not the same thing. They're very, very different things. And we know that at least in part because Jesus has a totally different response here in this passage to John's doubt than he does to Israel's doubt, which is actually unbelief. Totally different response. Why the different responses? It's because doubt is the open and honest wrestling with the truth. Well, unbelief is the stubborn, biased rejection of the truth. That's the difference. Look with me at Matthew 11, verses 16 through 19. I want to read these again for us. Here's what Jesus says. But what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. All right, how does those verses there prove what I just said? How does that prove my statement that unbelief is the stubborn rejection of truth? Well, doubt is the open and honest wrestling with the truth. Well, for that first statement, I think we've already shown that pretty clearly from verses 1 through 15 when it comes to doubt. But for the part about unbelief, in order to ground that statement, we actually need to understand what Jesus' illustration is telling us, right? And his illustration, what is it? It's of children's games. See, back in Jesus' day, the marketplace wasn't a little section on your Facebook app. The marketplace was a literal, physical place that you went to where you interacted with people, where you bought, you sold, and you traded, And this place was extremely popular. It was kind of the main center of activity often during the days. Um, The best illustration I could give you would be like a shopping mall back in the 90s, if some of you know what I'm talking about. If you've ever been to those old archaic buildings that used to exist, some still do. Point is, it was a happening place. And while adults would go to this marketplace and they would interact with other adults for buying and trading and selling and all that sort of things, they would often bring their little juniors with, and the kids would then play games while mom and dad were doing business. And so the kids would come, and then they would all play together. Now, here's an interesting historical fact that some of you might not have known, but back in Jesus' day, I did some research. These marketplaces didn't have Wi-Fi. So when these kids would come, their tablets wouldn't be able to connect with each other, and so they had to come up with new games to play with each other. And so what they would do is they would play old-fashioned games. What kind of old-fashioned games? Well, if you know anything about kids, and you'll only know this if you actually take their tablets and screens away, is when they don't have things to play with, what do kids play? They make believe playing adults. That's what they do. They pretend being grown-ups. For example, at my house, we have this brick fireplace, and I thought for like five minutes trying to figure out what it's even called, but it's like a ledge of brick in front of the fireplace. Somebody tell me, what is that called? I don't know what you just said. A hearth. I didn't know that. There we go. Awesome. So on the hearth, sounds weird, uh, at our house, it's a brick hearth, and so it actually kind of looks like a little platform. And so my kids, with the, my boys especially, what they will do is they like to pretend playing church. They like to pretend playing pastor. And so they'll go up there with their little fake guitars and they'll lead worship. And then sometimes I've even heard some preaching here and there. I don't know how accurate it was. 
But that's what they do. They pretend plain adult. And so it's the same thing that these children were doing back in Jesus' day. The two games that they would commonly play here that Jesus noticed, and he's using in his illustration here, were wedding and funeral. He's not saying those are the same thing. He's just using those as an example because these were very big, public, common events that were very important in this society, in this culture. And so the kids would see these regular events happening, and when mom and dad were off busy doing marketplace stuff, they'd make believe and pretend to play funeral and wedding. And so here's Jesus' point with this illustration. Jesus is saying that this generation is like children in the marketplace who don't get their way. And what do kids do when they don't get to play the game that they really wanted to play? Throw a little hissy fit, a little tantrum. Someone suggests funeral. That's not what I want to play. It's too solemn. And then somebody says, how about wedding? Oh, I don't want to play that. That's too joyful. Right? They're just little powders. And now do you see the absolute genius of Jesus' illustration here? This is one thing I found. I always begin in my sermons with illustration, but when we get to Jesus' illustrations, they're not even close. Jesus' are always way better. I don't know why that is. But the genius of Jesus' illustration is he's pointing out that John was the funeral, Jesus was the wedding. And yet, with both of these extremes on both corners, they didn't want it. They were little brats throwing fits. I don't want the wedding. I don't want the funeral. This one's too happy. This one's too sad. I don't want it. Nothing to do with it. They were basically going all Goldilocks, having to have everything just right. But because it wasn't just right, well, I wasn't just right because it wasn't their idea, then they didn't want it. And so they threw a fit. First came John. Why was he the funeral? Because he was the forerunner of Christ. And what was John's message? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They didn't like John. He was too solemn. He was too ascetic. He was too hardcore for them. And so verse 16 says that John came how? Neither eating nor drinking, which doesn't mean he never ate or drank water. He wouldn't have lived very long if he did that. But it's basically saying that John didn't come eating fancy foods and drinking fancy feasts. That's the point. And you remember back in Matthew chapter 3, we read about John's simplistic lifestyle. What was it? He wore camel's hair. Not the most comfortable of clothing. Not expensive. He wore a leather belt. And he ate locusts and wild honey, which his attire basically matched Elijah's. And as Jesus pointed out earlier in chapter 11, John wasn't a pretty boy. John was a rough and tough, rugged cowboy type. And his message wasn't positive and encouraging Caleb. That's not what it was. His message was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It was a very serious and solemn message. John wasn't afraid to speak that message. He didn't come and sugarcoat it and put all these qualifiers on it into oblivion where everybody's like, well, I don't really know what he said, but it sounded interesting. He was direct and to the point. So much to the point where it actually landed him in prison where he ended up getting his head removed for how bold he was. For example, of John's direct approach, we see back in chapter 3, when John was baptizing the people, the religious leaders, they came out to see what all the hoopla was about, to see what was going on. And do you remember what he said to them? I'm going to read it for us. This has been quite a while since, almost a year. Here's what it said. But when he saw many of the Pharisees, being John, and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath of come? 
bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you this, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And right there, I picture him doing a mic drop, but I don't know if he did that. This was a very, like, in-your-face kind of preaching, wasn't it? This wasn't gently massaging the truths in a way where it's trying to just appease people. John got to the point. He was a pulpit-banging, fire-brimstone preach. I can't bang this pulpit very good. It was made too solidly. Fire-and-brimstone-preaching holy man who made the religious leaders of Jesus' day look like the Cub Scouts by comparison. See, everybody thought the religious leaders of his day were like the Navy SEALs of religion, but John made them look like little wimps, didn't he? He put them to shame by comparison, and they didn't like him for that. And his zealous, on-fire-for-God personality didn't do it for that generation either. And so they wrote him off and ignored him by accusing him of what? Being a demon-possessed nutso is what they did. They said, oh, he's got a demon. He's, he's just crazy. He's, look at that guy. You can't, you can't take him too seriously. And while they rejected John's abstinence, Jesus' participation wasn't any better for them. John abstained, and they didn't like it. He was too hardcore, but Jesus participated in things, and they didn't like that anymore either. The funeral dirge of John was no good, but neither was the joyful wedding-like atmosphere of Jesus. Look at verse 19. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Unlike John, who lived and ate simply, Jesus went to the feasts and to the parties. He went to the celebrations. And in fact, what was Jesus' first miracle? Turn water into wine. Well, John, well, his preaching boldly called sinners to repent. And, and don't misunderstand me. Jesus did that too. He preached, for, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus was the friend of tax collectors and sinners. He ate with them. He dined with them. But the people, when they saw this, they rejected Jesus because though John was too holy, Jesus wasn't holy enough. It wasn't the game they wanted. It wasn't how it being played how they wanted, so they didn't want to have any part in it. And yet, here's the thing. Which one was from God, John or Jesus? Both. Yes, both of them. And so why then did the people of Jesus' generation reject both John, who was sent from God, and Jesus, who was sent from God and is God? Why did they do that? It's because neither John or Jesus offered the game that they wanted to play. It wasn't their way. They wanted it my way, the Burger King slogan. They listened to Bon Jovi, it's my life. And because they could not play the game they wanted, they could not be appeased. And because they couldn't be appeased, the real reason for that was what? Why couldn't they be appeased with John or Jesus? Well, who was John and Jesus from? From God. That was actually what they weren't appeased with. They were not appeased in God. 
Both John and Jesus preached the same message, though with different emphases and in different ways. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was their message. But it didn't matter what form that message came in. They didn't want to hear it. They didn't want the religious, they wouldn't, let me, I just made up a word there, the rigid religiousness of John, nor the joyous celebration of Jesus. And it, why? Because they had spiritual confirmation bias against God himself. And just in case you think this is some little tiny thing, it's not. For a confirmation bias, this kind of confirmation bias is ultimately a bias that is unmovable, which leads us to our second point. Unbelief is a confirmation bias that is unappeasable, but secondly, it's unmovable. Look with me at verses, uh, at verses here 20 through 21. Here's Jesus' response now to their unbelieving confirmation bias. It says in verse 20, Then he, being Jesus, began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. And here's what Jesus says, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. And look at verse 23. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained unto this day. This is remarkable. There's so much in this that we sadly don't have time to unpack, but we'll scratch the surface a bit. In verse 20, it mentions that Jesus is denouncing the cities. What cities? The ones that he had visited once or twice? No, the ones where he had done most of his mighty works in, most of his miracles. Those are the ones that he's denouncing. And a while back, if you remember, we looked at chapters 8 and 9 of the book of Matthew, which go through a whole bunch of those kind of miracles that Jesus did, and they were remarkable. He healed the sick. He healed disease. He made the lame walk, the blind see. He raised the dead. He did remarkable things. And this is just a sampling of all of the mighty miracles that Jesus did. Why do I say it's just a sampling? Because the Apostle John in his gospel tells us it's just a sampling. He says if they had written down all of the works that Jesus had done, there wouldn't be enough space in this world to, fill, to, to hold all the books that were written of that. Jesus did a lot of things. It's remarkable. And someday I look forward to, hopefully, Lord willing, finding out all of the other things that Christ did. That will be a wonderful thing, won't it? All right, now stick with me here. But back in Matthew 4, 13 through 16, and here's, this is the, why this text today is so challenging, is because the basic truths in it are pretty straightforward. But Matthew does this thing where he's doing an inductive argument. He keeps building upon what he's already laid. So if you aren't familiar with the, you know, the first 10 chapters of Matthew, first 11 and a half, it gets difficult to understand all of the nuance of what Jesus is expounding upon here in this text. So I'm going to try to connect some of these pieces together for us. That's why we're jumping around a little bit at these other passages. Here's what he says. And leaving Nazareth, Jesus went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Why? So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. 
And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. How did the people respond to this light that had dawned? They ignored it. They didn't respond to it well at all. They responded to it with unbelief. They saw the light and the life of men, and they were unmoved. That's remarkable. They saw the miraculous works of Christ where he healed the sick, cast out disease, cast out demons, raised the dead. And they were like, that's interesting. What's on TV? It's remarkable. Yes, Jesus drew large crowds. Yes, the people did show some interest in that so far as it benefited them personally. But what did they ultimately fail to do, which they should have done in response to Jesus and these mighty miracles? What did they, what did they not do that they should have done? What did they not do that they should have done that Jesus denounces them for? Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They didn't do it. Look back at verse 20. Then Jesus began to announce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. That's the reason for his denunciation. That's the reason he condemns them. Repent. All right, what does that word mean to repent? Yes, good answer. You're looking at the notes here, John. (laughs) Good answer. Uh, So let me ask you this, though. John's got the right answer, but does repent also mean that somebody needs to feel sorry for their sins and ask Jesus into their heart? Is that what it means to repent? No. That, and why? Because a simple, temporary moment of feelings and sorrow isn't biblical repentance. We have numerous examples of that throughout the scripture where somebody comes to see their sin, they show show tears, they show sadness, all this stuff, but it's actually not biblical repentance. It's not. Does repentance mean that they need to go to God and start listing off all the bad things that they've done ever since they were a little kid and ask for forgiveness for every single one of them? Is that what repentance is in the Bible? No, they'd be doing that for infinity. That's not what repentance is. What is repentance? John gave us the answer. Repentance means to change your mind, to change your direction. And what kind of mind change or directional change is Jesus looking for here? It's the kind that could never look at the light and life of men and remain indifferent about it, remain unmoved by it. To say, yeah, that whole son of God thing, that's kind of interesting. I could see how that might benefit my life. I'd like to, you know, get rid of this whatever disease I've got or, you know. No. Repentance is much more than that. Repentance isn't penance. That makes sense? It's not penance. But what is it? Repentance is the pursuit of God for who God is, not what he can give us. That's a massive difference. Instead of wanting the gifts, we want the giver. That's what repentance is. And yet, here was a generation that saw God in the flesh, living among them, living a perfect life, teaching perfect truth without error and healing the sick, casting out demons and raising the dead, and yet their hearts remained unmoved. They did not follow suit with biblical repentance. Now, before you rush to judge these people and think, how could they do this? Are they nuts? They saw literally dead people come back to life. How could they be this way? 
Well, before you rush to judgment, ask yourself this. Am I really that much different? How many times have you heard the teachings of Christ and thought, oh, that's interesting, but yet your heart left remaining unmoved? And because your heart left remaining unmoved, you went out into a sin-fallen world to chase after your pet sins instead of God. How many times have you heard Christ's call to repent? Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is near. And yet you ignore that call, that warning, the eminence of Christ's return by living as if the kingdom of heaven isn't at hand. Maybe you grew up in the church. Maybe you've heard more sermons than you can even recount. Maybe you've heard the gospel presented to you a bazillion times. You've gone to Bible studies, prayer groups, Christian camps. But here's the thing. All of those things are pointing us to the light and life of men. And if your heart remains unmoved to Christ, if it remains unrepentant, where you don't turn from the things of this world to pursue Christ above all things, then you have not come to repentance. And if that's the case, you need to know something here that's very important this morning. If that's the case, know that God finds your unbelief, that's what it is, completely unacceptable. Completely unacceptable, which is our third point. Unbelief is a confirmation bias that is unappeasable, It's unmovable. And third, it's unacceptable. Look at verses 21 through 24. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Can you think of another city that did that? When they heard preaching of not John the Baptist, but another similar prophet? Nineveh. That's what comes to mind here, doesn't it? And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. In these verses, Jesus goes on to denounce the unbelief of these three cities by contrasting them to three other cities. Tyre and Sidon were cities in the Old Testament who were known for being Baal-worshipping pagans. They were cities that represent arrogant opposition to Yahweh God and opposition to God's people. And if you want to read about the dangerous and severe prophecies given against them, we don't have time today, but you'll need to look at the books of Isaiah and Ezekiel where those are explained in there. The third city, though, was Sodom, Sodom and Gomorrah, a very common uh, Bible story that many of us have heard. And so this third city, Sodom, which along with Gomorrah, which isn't mentioned here, was wiped out by God, how? With fire and brimstone. What else is coming with fire and brimstone that that was just a picture of? Well, the coming day of the Lord. When the whole world is consumed by fire and the new heavens and the new earth come into being. And so Sodom was consumed by God with fire and brimstone. Why? 
well, certainly for sexual perversion and godlessness, but what was underneath all of that sexual perversion and godlessness? Unbelief. Unbelief. And remarkably, the most shocking thing that this crowd probably heard was that, that they got compared to Sodom. It's like, are you kidding? What? How dare you? Would have been the response. And Jesus says something even more remarkable. He says, it's going to actually be worse for you all having heard and seen the light and life of men, the gospel truth, than it will be for Sodom on the day of judgment. That's what his point is. And this is remarkable because this tells us an important truth that we need to know that often is denied in our culture, sadly, but it's that there are degrees of torment and judgment. There's degrees of suffering and judgment before God because of our sin. Yes, it's all bad, but some is more bad. And there are degrees also, I should mention to you, of blessing in Christ's kingdom, which are based upon our obedience, our allegiance to him. It's two sides of the same coin here. So in hell, in judgment, there are degrees of suffering and punishment. It literally says that in the text. That's its point. And so we need to take this seriously. And so if you are here today, if you've heard the gospel message of Jesus, and yet you remain unmoved in your unbelief, then hear Jesus' woe unto you. Woe isn't a how dare you, shame upon you. No, it's actually like an expression of sorrow, of sadness, of the coming judgment and suffering that will come upon these people. And so this is the thing about that. If you are sitting today here listening to this sermon like you've done many other countless times, you're bringing in your unbelief a greater judgment upon yourself, just like Chorazin, just like Bethsaida, and just like Capernaum did. And if you haven't come to repentance, a repentance that moves your heart to follow after Christ, then hear Jesus' warnings to these cities. Don't be like Capernaum, who in verse 23 presumed what? That they would be exalted to heaven. They're not. What does Jesus say? Don't presume you're going to be exalted to heaven. In fact, you're going to be brought down to hell. Don't just be a hearer of the word, an assumer of things, but be a doer who repents and follows after the light and life of men. Be one who truly repents. How? Look at verse 6. What did Jesus start all this with? Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. That's it. See, in John, the forerunner of Christ, the people found offense at John's strong message, which was to repent because of their sins. It was too much. It was too blunt. It was in their face. They didn't want to hear it. It was too strong. Why? Because John told them that nothing in and of themselves could save them from the wrath of God. Look again with me at Matthew 3. That's what he said to him. He said, don't presume to say to yourselves that we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to raise up from these stones children for Abraham. You see what he's saying? I'm going to keep reading this. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. That's judgment. And every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruits, this is is repentance-like language, is cut down and thrown into the fire. Look what he says here. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me, which is Christ, 
is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to even carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is judgment, day of the Lord type language, church. And so do you see what John was saying to, this, to the people? He was telling them, your religious report card isn't going to cut it. God doesn't, God doesn't care if you're the child of Abraham. He can raise up from the stones children of Abraham. That doesn't matter before him. Only one thing cuts it. The mighty one who is coming, whose sandals are not worthy of carrying, who will baptize us either into one of two baptisms, the baptism of fire or the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is a baptism of salvation. And how then do we avoid the baptism of fire and receive and walk in this baptism of, ju- of salvation? By recognizing that we can only receive the baptism of salvation because Christ received the baptism of fire that you deserved, that I deserved. We absolutely did. We must come to recognize that. See, here's the thing about Christianity, why Christianity is so different than every other religion, because it absolutely is. Christianity tells us two things about our spiritual confirmation bias. Or tells us two, let, me, let me say it this way. Christianity tells us two things about our spiritual state that our spiritual confirmation bias hates. Does that make sense that time? Okay, here's what it tells us. One, we're more sinful than we can ever possibly comprehend. We're not just sick, we're spiritually dead. We have nothing to offer God. Everybody got an F on the report card spiritually. The second thing is that we can only be saved then by the sheer grace of God. Our heart hates that. It absolutely does. And if you think it doesn't, you need to think about that a little harder. We hate these ideas because we hate the idea that our spiritual report report cards deserve the same F as murders and rapists. Do you really think that, like, intellectually, will you admit that I am as just as bad before God, just as fallen, just as sinful, just as on my way to hell as Hitler was and is? Do you really believe that in your heart of hearts? I don't. I struggle with that still as a follower of Christ. It's hard to believe that that's true. And so what our heart naturally thinks is, come on, I'm not that bad. Surely I don't need to repent as much as that person over there. Have you seen them? They're a train wreck spiritually compared to me. You're really telling me, preacher, that a genocidal murderer like Hitler could have repented of his sins on his deathbed and been ushered into eternal glory. That is offensive to me. You're telling me that he could do that and go to heaven, and I, if I didn't trust in Christ in my life, which is much better than his, I'd go to hell? That's Christianity's message, and it's absurd to the human heart. Each and every one of our hearts are like the children in the marketplace. We don't want the harsh funeral dirge of God's rigid and unbending law, so we try to soften it. But at the same time, nor do we want Jesus, the friend of sinners, who invites us into his celebration feast, not by works so that no one will boast, but by the sheer grace of God. And here's the thing about this. True biblical repentance. It's a turning. It absolutely is. 
but it turns from our self-righteous efforts to the only righteous one who perfectly followed and obeyed God's laws. That's what repentance is. True repentance believes before God that unless Christ had borne the baptism of fire that I deserve, that you deserve, then none of us could ever receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the baptism of salvation. True repentance realizes what the last part of verse 19 says, which is this, wisdom is justified by her deeds. This is a very difficult, this is the most difficult part in this whole passage to explain, especially in less than an hour. I'm just that alone. There's so much going on with this statement, but I have to keep it short, so I'm going to try to make this clear. Here's what it's saying. Wisdom is personified by her deeds. What does that mean? Why is it calling wisdom a her? Well, for that, you need to start coming to the men's morning Bible study. I don't care. Anybody can come and find out what that means. Or you can just for now look at Proverbs chapter 8. It's personification. But what about that other part about wisdom being justified by her deeds? What's the deeds part? Okay, don't zone out here. Stick with me. Most commentators will tell you that this is speaking of Christ, his deeds, the fruit of his works. Okay? Because the context here is Jesus and John, right? And unbelieving Israel, and Jesus is saying, you know what? In spite of their unbelief, of their rejection, wisdom is justified by her deeds. I will come to show you that my message matters, that it doesn't fall deaf, that it doesn't fall short. It actually accomplishes what I am here to accomplish. Make sense so far? Okay, we have to go to 1 Corinthians to ground the next part here. Okay? As far as the wisdom and deeds here, we've got to look at 1 Corinthians 1, 25 through 31. All right? Here's the thing about the wisdom part. Stick with me. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. That's the whole first part of 1 Corinthians 1, 2, and 3. It's just the wisdom of God versus the foolishness of this world. And the foolishness of God is greater than the wisdom of this world. Okay? So the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Look at this. Who became to us wisdom from God. Christ Jesus is the wisdom from God. And so this verse ends in saying, let the one who boasts then boast in the Lord. In the Greek and in Luke's gospel, which is parallel to this, it literally reads, wisdom is justified by her offspring. It says that in Luke's account, and that's what the Greek word here is actually getting at. So how then is Christ, the wisdom of God, justified by her offspring? And I'm, over, I'm majorly oversimplifying this, just for the record. But how is, he just, how is this justified by her offspring? It's because the offspring of Christ will ultimately be justified. They will not be snuffed out, even in the face of such remarkable unbelief. Christ's mission will still come to fruition. It will still accomplish what God has sent him to accomplish. 
And on the day of judgment, when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, the wisdom of God will reign over the foolishness of men. On that day, all of Christ's offspring, God's children, who remain, who were in their unbelief, but then move towards Christ in belief, will stand victoriously justified by Christ's deeds, the wisdom of God, and what he accomplished for us on the cross. The wisdom of God, Jesus Christ, has been and will be vindicated before all. Though the unbelief of Israel made it look like the wisdom of God would not be justified by her deeds, though the cross of Christ made it look like the wisdom of God would not be justified by the deeds, all of this was a part of the infinite wisdom of God, which saw it wise to take sin-fallen, confirmation-biased unbelievers and supernaturally change their hearts from a heart of unbelief to a heart of belief. And it is only because of God's wisdom that Paul could write in 1 Corinthians 2, 7 through 9. No, we declare God's wisdom. A mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. It's a remarkable verse. That is going to come to fruition, church. It's happening sooner than we may think. And as much as I love to come before you every Sunday and share God's word to lead you in the worship of God, we have a day that is coming where we will see God face to face, and this pastor is going to retire from his pulpit permanently as we all come before Christ the King and worship him, the King of glory, the one who was crucified so that unbelieving sinners like us could have hearts that believe. By the wisdom and grace of God, may we be the offspring of Christ, the children of belief. Father, I thank you for this text. I ask that your spirit would be working in our hearts, convicting us of sin, convicting us of unbelief. Even as believers, we can trail into that at times, Lord. So we ask that we would not manifest our lives in unbelief where we chase after the sin of this world, where we ignore the beauty of Christ, where we ignore the light and life of men, but that by your power, we might live in our repentance as we chase after Christ, who is the supreme image of beauty itself, greater than anything this world has to offer. And so may we have the eyes of faith to see the beauty of the risen Christ for your glory and for our good. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Just stand with us as we sing our closing song, Only a Holy God.